Mic check. One, two, one, two. Mic check. Mew, mew. Oh, my. Hello, Mew. Mew, mew. How are you today? Meow. Hey, we talked about you can't meow like a kitty. You have to answer my questions. All right, let's start with a basic one. What's your name? Cade. Cade. Cade, what grade will you be going into next year? Fourth grade. First grade. What are your favorite foods, Cade? Pizza, hamburgers, and tacos. Pizza, hamburgers, tacos. How good was the pork that I made last night? One to ten. Ten being the best you've ever had in your entire life. Nine. Ooh, wow. Nine. Okay. If you go to Starbucks, what is your preferred breakfast sandwich of choice? Bacon Gouda. Mm. What video game have you enjoyed playing the most lately? Mm, my Lego Star Wars Saga game. Lego Star Wars Saga game. Okay. What video game do you enjoy watching Daddy play the most? Zelda. Uh, yeah. Anything else? Anything else you'd like to add here? Mm, no. What are you looking forward to doing today when I'm done with this? Seeing if we can go to the pool, maybe. Oh, okay. So basically, I need to record this show so we can go to the pool, yes? Yes. Okay. Well, then, let's get to it. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and this is the big Q&A coaching show. Hopefully, you did not mind the little intro with Cade. He was very adamant that he'd get on to this week's episode. He loves, you know... Is so interested in the podcast and the videos and all the stuff that I do. So hopefully you didn't mind that. And yeah, today we are going to talk about coaching. But before we get there, I want to just do like a really short intro, talk a little bit about Memorial Day weekend, what's going on, and then we will jump into this week's show. So last weekend was Memorial Day, lots of fun around here. But if you know anything about the Midwest, we have this nasty tendency about two out of every three years where we just skip spring. I mean, literally it goes from like 50 degrees to 80. And that definitely happened this year. I mean, last week we were sitting mid to low 50s as far as the highs. And then the weekend came around and it was like 85, 90. It was crazy how hot it got. So definitely a shock to the system. But hey, it's hard to argue when it's Memorial Day weekend. You got 80s and 90s. You can take the kids to the pool. You can spend the whole weekend outside and it's just awesome out. So a little bit hotter than I would have liked. But all in all, pretty darn good. Did make an amazing pork shoulder. Now, there's a, there's a backstory to this, right? So I've been obsessed with the grill, wanted to try some new stuff. So Saturday, I cooked some pork tenderloin. It's super, super easy, right? Like a one hour, I don't know. It was like a four hour marinade, right? So I put the marinade on first thing in the morning. It took like an hour to cook. It was so good. So I'm like, okay, I'm ready to branch out, do like another proper low and slow. The only thing I'd done before were ribs. And so I was ready to do like a pork shoulder or something like that. So I've got it all set up. It's only like four and a half pounds. So like worst case scenario, it should be ready in eight hours. So I put this thing on at 1020 in the morning and you can already imagine where I'm going with this. Like one o'clock, I'm at like 156 and I have to get it to 200. I'm like, oh, this couldn't be any easier until I realized that it's almost now six o'clock. So like four, four and a half hours later, and it's only at 167. And <laughs> that sucker moved like 10 degrees in like four hours. So they call it a stall. And I've heard of it happening before. And my buddies had told me about it, but 
didn't think it would happen again because this was such a small pork shoulder. So yeah, of course, just the world is imploding. My kids are starving. People are crying. So Jess had to make a separate dinner at like six o'clock so we get eat at six thirty because that pork shoulder didn't finish until nine o'clock. Now we were out late anyway, so I shredded it up and the kids were just snarfing it. And so excited that we got that done, although not exactly the rousing into Memorial Day weekend that I was looking for. But it is what it is. Tonight we're going to have some amazing pork nachos and excited about that. So a little bit of grilling, took the kids to the pool. As again, as you heard in the intro, the weather's been great. So the kids have been stalking me already because they want to go to the pool again today. So yeah, got that going on. Triple crossing my fingers that we can reopen the gym this week or next Monday. Everything has been going incredibly smoothly within the state of Indiana up to this point. So really now it's up to the mayor of Indianapolis as to whether he's going to hold up his end of the bargain on June 1. Everything that I've heard has been positive, but I'm just at that point where, you know, you just keep getting your hopes dashed and I don't want to have to go through that mental process again. So hopefully we're going to keep it just positive. We're going to focus on what we can control and hopefully come next Monday, we're going to reopen. So I got that, got my guy Paul coming in this weekend. We're going to shoot some new videos. I've got an awesome breathing video that whenever I say breathing sounds very basic, but excited to shoot it. I'm going to talk about some of the misconceptions about breathing, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and some positional breathing exercises I think will make a massive impact on how you, your clients, and your athletes move and feel. So excited to get Paul in here and put in some work. And really, I'm just kind of excited to get back to some semblance of normal. So that does it for me. I'm not going to continue to ramble on and we're going to skip over the whole pre-roll, ad roll, whatever we want to call it. And we are going to jump into this week's episode. So here we go. Okay. So for this week's episode, what I am essentially going to do is break it into three separate areas, if you will. So I've got individual questions, but I've got three kind of broad umbrellas that it fits under. So we've got career and coaching, we have continuing education, and we have program design. So we're going to start with career and coaching questions first. And keep in mind, as I'm going through this, if this stimulates thought, or if you have follow-up questions, please shoot me an email, hit me up with a DM on Instagram, whatever you can think of to get in contact with me. And not necessarily saying I can go into great depth, Via, via those mediums. But if we want to continue the conversation, I maybe do a second one of these later on. I think it's really valuable because I get so many questions on coaching, on continuing education. So I want to make sure I answer as many of those for you. And I try and make your path as clear as possible going forward. So first question comes from Julia Rogers, and we're going to cover career and coaching first. So Julia wants to know, how do I make coaching a career because it's a side hustle right now? And this takes me back to when I first got started coaching. So if we go back to 2000 and crazy to think about this, but we're literally like about the time I started my internship, it was May of 2000 when I first started getting in the trenches and working with athletes on a regular basis. So really after that internship, my entire grad school career coaching was my side hustle because if you had to put some ranking or priority to this, 1A was my graduate school studies. 1B was my graduate assistantship responsibilities in the biomechanics lab. And then everything else was side hustle, 
right? So my time in the gym that I spent working with athletes and I spent coaching those athletes was my side hustle. So the advice that I would give is this, like, look, you can't just jump all into coaching, right? And I don't know where you're at, Julia. So I'm going to give you a couple options here. I would say if you are literally just getting your feet in the game and you're just trying to figure all this out, I would keep your day job, right? And then your side hustle should be trying to learn from a mentor in your downtime. So that could be weekends, that could be evenings, that could be first thing in the morning. Because the great thing about training and coaching in a lot of instances is you're working around other people's work schedule, right? So you could go in and volunteer from 6 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. You could get off your shift at work and go volunteer somewhere from 5.30 to 8 p.m. You could volunteer all day on Saturday, Sunday, doesn't matter. You know, you got to kind of match your energy level with what works best, but you need time and you need experience. So if you're new to the game and you're not really at a point where you can charge or work with people on your own yet, I would say the mentorship is going to be huge. Now, if you are kind of already certified, or you're already working with people, that advice is the same. You know, you can still work around other people's schedules, but I think you need an added element of like con ed to go with that as well. Because what I find with most young coaches, if you're just starting out, like you're interning, I don't want you to consume a lot of other stuff because what I'm giving you as your mentor or as your internship coordinator is probably enough, right? Like if you're taking that and then interning and doing all that, like you've got enough in your brain. But let's say you've got like one person a week that you're starting with. You need to take that one person and you need to dive all in on them. So you need to understand if it's a fat loss client, you need to understand fat loss principles. You need to understand basic principles of nutrition. So you need that. And then you need to use that person. I don't want to say as a guinea pig, but in some instances like a guinea pig, and then you need to tap into that person and their network to help you grow your client base. So if I go back to when I was doing in-home training, it's not like you put an ad in the paper and you say, oh, if you are making more than 500K per year, you may be a great prospect for in-home personal training. It's not how it works. What you do is you have your set clientele or your set client base. And then when it's time to grow the business, or maybe you want to add a new coach, that's when you start shaking the trees and you go to your current clients and you say, hey, look, man, you know, we're doing really well. My calendar's pretty full, but we want to add a new coach. Or, you know, my calendar's pretty full, but I've got these few hours that I'd like to kind of fill up. Do you have anybody that you think would be a good fit? So that's where you kind of have to, it's a multi-pronged approach, right? You have to be coaching people to get the experience. You've got to be taking the time out to grow your knowledge base. And then you've got to do kind of that interpersonal communication, rapport building, but like your clients are your marketing at that point. I don't think you need fancy business cards and a sexy webpage. Your clients are going to be your gateway to start building your business. And as you get more and more successful, then you can start to scale back other areas, right? So like you start building your client base and you don't need to work as much. Well, maybe you can go to part-time or you can go to like a PRN where you set your own schedule and now you can work more around your client base. But two ways that you can approach that based on whether you're more of like a, I need an internship mentorship type level or 
I'm already coaching people and I need to start growing that side of the business. So hope that helps, Julia. My second question came back to how do I just get started in coaching? And this is a question that I get literally every single week. Like I'm passionate about coaching. I want to get into coaching. What do I do? And I actually shot an entire YouTube video for this. It was on YouTube and the gram. But the big piece of advice and the big takeaway I gave to people here is if you want to get started in coaching, you have to get started coaching. And I know that sounds redundant or maybe silly, but here's what I mean by that. A lot of people love to talk about, oh, yeah, yeah, I want to be a coach. I'm into coaching and da, 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 da. And then you ask some questions about program design or interpersonal communication. And they've got all these great answers, but they're by the book. And look, by the book is fine. Like if I can use an analogy here, like I love cooking now and I love doing stuff on the grill, but I'm not a chef. I'm a cook. Like if you give me a recipe, I can follow it and I can execute it, but I'm not a chef. I don't know how to add, subtract all that good stuff. So knowing things, right? Having textbook knowledge doesn't make you a coach. To be a coach, you have to have experience. So experience is how you get started in coaching. Now, how do you get started? Great question. And this comes back to what Julia was asking. Like, if you want to get started, you have to find somebody that's willing to give you a safe space to fail. You need to find a mentor. You need to find an internship. Again, it depends on where you're at in life. A lot of times, if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you want to make this a career, you may not be able to do a full-fledged 16-week internship. Maybe you can, but a lot of people can't. So that's where you need to reach out. You need to find somebody it could be at the local big box gym. It could be at the local university. You know, it depends on who you want to work with, but you have to find a mentor that's going to allow you to not only learn underneath them, but to gain experience underneath them. And I can't stress that highly enough. When I meet new interns, so we just had a new intern class start today at the gym. They're not working yet, obviously, because the gym's not there, but we did our orientation today. And I always tell them that one of the biggest things about our internship that makes us unique is that you are going to get reps and experience as a coach. And I don't think we see this as much anymore. I think in general, from what I understand, most places treat their interns a little bit better than they did 15, 20 years ago. Because I know there were internships as few as five, 10 years ago where your internship consisted of you clean up after the groups, you stand in a corner, you shut your mouth and you watch what the coach does. And I've never believed in that. Ever since we opened the gym, 2008, Nick the intern was coaching clients. He was getting reps in as a coach because that's the only way that you learn. So if you want to get started in coaching, you have to find a position. You have to find an environment where you can go in and you can actually coach people. There is no shortcut. There is no fast track here. It takes time and it takes reps. So if you want to get started in coaching, number one, watch that video. Number two, find some people that will give you an ability and a space where you can work with real clients, real athletes, so you can have successes, you can have failures, because that's how you truly start to become a coach and not just a technician or somebody that can talk the talk when it comes to writing a program. Okay, number three, and the last one in this section comes from Damien Zett. And I had a similar question from another gentleman, so I think this is Something that's really important to hear. Damien asks, how do you deal with difficult athletes that want to do fancy exercises instead of the basics? And 
Damien, this is a great question. I think the the other question that was asked was, how do you get people to buy in? And it came from a young coach. Like, I'm a young coach, so how do I get people to buy in? And I think regardless of whether we're talking about somebody that wants to do fancy stuff and not basic stuff or somebody that we need to buy into our programming and what we're doing, the first piece there is educating them. The first piece is educating them as to why what you're doing is going to benefit them. And beyond just benefits, we have to drive home the concept of context. So the analogy that I use here is this. When you're talking about the squat, I think we can all universally agree that a squat is an important movement pattern to learn, right? Whether we're talking about an athlete, bodybuilder, a power lifter, a fat loss client, they can all benefit from squatting. But here's the thing. If you try and explain why a fat loss client should squat, use their context to an athlete, it's not going to work. Or if you try and use the squatting context of an athlete and explain that to a power lifter, that's not going to work. So it's like anything else. You have to have the right context and the right explanation for the person standing in front of you. So if I'm trying to explain to a basketball player why we squat, well, number one, it's going to help you sit into your stance. Number two, it's going to help you jump higher. Number three, it's going to help you keep your knees healthy, on and on and on. So I give them a context and a rationale that's specific to them. It helps relate to them. So they understand why we're doing this, how it's going to benefit them. That's what that's all anybody wants. They want to know how certain things are going to benefit them or make their life better. So that's basketball. When it's fat loss, you know, maybe a fat loss client just hates squatting, right? Well, number one, I would say you don't necessarily have to squat. There's no exercise you have to do unless you're a power lifter, because if you're a power lifter, you got to squat, bench, or deadlift. But if you're a fat loss client or you're a hypertrophy client or you're a athlete, there's no exercise you have to do. But if you're a fat loss client, I'll say, hey, this is a fantastic total body exercise. It's going to rev up your metabolism. It's going to burn, you know, help you burn more body fat on and on and on. So you just have to be able to give them a context that's appropriate to them. You have to educate them because look, a lot of our clients, unfortunately, they don't know better, right? The athletes that I work with, they just know what looks sweet on Instagram. They know what, you know, so-and-so all-star athlete is doing. So they just assume that if they're doing that, that's what they should be doing. Now we may know as their coaches that that's totally ridiculous and that's not doing anything for them. But then it's our job to explain to them, look, this is what they're trying to do. This is why it does or doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, here's a better alternative. Here's why we do this exercise. And sometimes too, I find that it can help to just be really open and honest about the elephant in the room. Like a lot of times I just tell my athletes straight up, especially if they're young or if they're new to working with me, I'll just be honest with them and say, look, a lot of the stuff that we do isn't sexy. It's not going to look super cool. It's not going to make you look like this awesome beast mode in the gym when you put it on Instagram. But I tell you what it is going to do. It's going to make you a better athlete. It's going to help you defend better. It's going to help you jump higher. It's going to make you more confident when you step on the court. So there is that element of not just giving them context, but it's persuasion as well. And you're trying to persuade them to see things from your point of view. And, you know, as a young coach, I get it. That can be hard because you're not totally confident in yourself. I'll be honest, like for probably 15 years, I wasn't totally confident in some things, even things that I 100% believed in. It's hard to be totally confident because as coaches, it's it's normal for us to have like this, this imposter syndrome or to think that, you know, maybe I just don't know what I'm doing. So that's normal. And if you're going through that, that's fine. But your goal over time is to be more and more confident 
more and more persuasive and to become a better educator. Give them context, help them understand why this is going to benefit them. And then the buy-in should come. It should be easier for you. And ultimately, if they buy in, if they do what you need them to do, then ultimately at the end of the day, they get a better result. And that's what it's all about. Okay. So our next section, we're going to focus on coaching and the continuing education of a coach. And we're going to start first with Ryan Uman. Hopefully I pronounced your name correctly, Ryan, but he asked a very simple question. What con ed would I recommend? And instead of giving you a blanket answer, because I don't know you, I don't know where you're at, I don't know what your experiences are, the clients you work with, I don't have enough specifics to answer that directly. I'm going to give you an answer that I think will be helpful, not just now, but hopefully in the future as well. So what I would suggest for the first five to 10 years of your career is to learn as much about strength and conditioning as possible right? Physical preparation, whatever you want to call it. Learn about program design, learn about coaching, learn about functional anatomy, learn about breathing, sets, reps, all those things, right? Dive in as much as you can and just learn the basics, the foundational stuff, the physiology, the anatomy, the biochemistry. There's so many elements to what we do. And honestly, you could go even further than that, right? You could do that for 15, 20 years. But I would say at a certain point, It's like focusing on one physical quality too much, right? So, you know, at 20 years, if all I learned about was strength and conditioning or physical preparation, I feel like that ultimately limits, not only limits my thought process, but it limits my creativity. So something I've been doing a lot more of now is reading other things that stimulate my brain, right? It could be an autobiography. It could be philosophy. It could be fiction. And so those things, what happen is I start to take the thoughts and the things that come from that, and they get infused back into coaching or back into program design. So right now I'm reading this autobiography about Rick Ross. And so just reading about some of the parallels in his life and my life and my career, not not from Miami, not slinging dope or whatever he was doing, but it gives me some insights as to how he did things. And then it gives me an understanding of, oh, I could take that into our marketing for the gym or for RTS. You know, you read about other successful people and you can infuse that into what you're doing. So I think those first five to 10 years are so formative and you need to expose yourself almost exclusively to training related stuff. You've got to take a deep dive in because that's where you get kind of that first layer of expert status. But from there, you need to find a blend and and everybody's blend is different, right? Maybe you're just super nerdy, geeky, and all you want to learn about is strength and conditioning. So maybe it's 80% that and then 20% other stuff. Maybe you're a more creative type and you know you don't want to be constrained by the traditional rules of SNC. Maybe you're going to flip that on its head. Maybe you're going to go like 20% SNC, 80% other stuff that allows you to be creative and think on your own. So I don't think there's a one size fits all approach to that. But I think those first five to 10 years are absolutely critical with regards to having a having a built a strong foundation that you can build from going forward. Second question comes from Sarah Smith and Sarah wants to know, how do you plan or structure Con Ed annually or over three to five years? So this is a great question. And I think I can build off my answer to Ryan here because it's a little bit more specific. So what I tend to do every, I don't do it as often now, but I used to do it every, say, 
six months to a year. Now I do it every couple years is I have to do a zoom out, right? So instead of being in the trenches, in the weeds, doing my training, doing my coaching, I have to kind of zoom out and get that 30,000 foot view of where am I at as a coach? What am I really good at? What am I okay at? What do I really suck at? (laughs) And this is humbling stuff. And if I want to go back into the Wayback Machine, when I graduated with my master's degree in 2002, I did like a self-analysis, right? And being the really humble kid that I was, I thought, oh, I'm a power lifter. Strength development, I'm like a 9 out of 10. I thought I was really good at that, which is comical now thinking back, considering I'd only been really seriously strength training for like two years. I mean, I'd worked out for like 10, but I'd only really been into like powerlifting and serious strength training for like two years. Anyway. Gave myself a ranking of 9 out of 10 on strength. And I gave myself a 2 out of 10 on the topic of rehab because I had little to no exposure for it. And if you know anything about my career arc, what was my first job after that? Oh, yeah, in a rehab facility. So needless to say, I learned a lot over the next three years. I learned about assessments. I learned about functional anatomy. I learned about building a rehabilitation or return to play protocol. So... You know, there's that full scale immersion approach, but I think a better approach is to go in and have like a really comprehensive analysis as to where you're at and figure out, okay, not just what am I bad at? Because maybe if you're a power lifter, like why do you need to learn about speed development? You don't need to go and read Charlie Francis or Stu McMillan or Derek Hansen. Like it's probably not going to move the needle for you if all you train is power lifters. But if you are a physical preparation coach, if you work with athletes and all you know is strength, I would say that's a pretty strong indicator that you need to diversify what it is you're doing. So what I'll do is I'll go in, figure out what my weaknesses or what I would describe as my rate limiters. And then from there, I'm going to attack those with voraciousness. So I'll give you another example. When when I started to realize like I had some serious holes in my game. This is 2011, 2012. I start to realize, okay, conditioning and and speed are my two big things. From looking at R7, right? R1, R2, R3, which would be release, reset readiness, I can crush those. I felt confident in correctives and that sort of thing. And again, not to say that I can't get better or that I didn't get better since then, but I felt comfortable in those. I didn't feel like those were my limiters. R5, my strength piece, I felt confident in those. But R4 and R6 were the areas that I felt like were weaknesses for me. So what I did was essentially a full immersion program, but with a filter. So here's what I mean by that. When I started diving into speed, if I read everything that I could get my hands on from the speed world, I would be overwhelmed in a heartbeat because everybody has their own lens, their own angle. And I don't have a filter for that, or I didn't have a filter for that at that point in time. So If I read something strength training related in 2012, I could very quickly siphon out who knew what they were talking about and who didn't. Because by that time, I'd been in the strength game for like 12 years. I'd pushed decent weight myself. So I had a filter to put everything through. But I didn't when it came to speed or conditioning. So what I did was when I dove into speed, I took one person. I used Lee Taft. He was my beacon of light, if you will. And I learned everything that I could from Lee because I felt like, 90 to 95% of what he was saying was true and factual and I could use it and apply it. And 
perhaps most importantly, he had a he had a full system. It wasn't just like here's a cool running exercise. It's like here's a comprehensive speed and agility system. So I took that and I dove in. Right, 2012, Lee and Nick Winkleman came to our gym and basically did a one day course. And from that day forward, I made it a goal to consume as much from Lee as I could. And here I am, eight years later, and confident in my speed game. But what I did was once I got comfortable with Lee's system and Lee's approach, and I felt like I had at least a good grasp of that, now I can go and I can read Charlie Francis. Now I can go and I can read Derek Hansen. Now I can go and I can read Stu McMillan. And I can take all the stuff that they're saying and relate it down to those core or basic principles that Lee mentioned. Now, they may have different names for stuff. They may have different terminologies. They may have different cues that they use. But because I had a filter to put it through because of Lee's work, it made my life so much easier. The same thing happened when it came to conditioning. And it's kind of about that same time where I realized, man, my conditioning game is really, really poor. I don't understand how to write a conditioning program. So I dove into Joel's stuff, like both feet in the deep end. I'm going to figure this stuff out. And so once I understand what Joel was chasing and I understand the physiology and I understand the adaptations he was chasing with his different protocols, now I can go and I can read Mark McLaughlin's stuff, Val Nesedkin's stuff, Patrick Ward's stuff, all these other brilliant guys that were talking about conditioning and endurance training. And I understood what they were doing or what they were chasing. So that's what I would do is I would figure out very specifically, what are my weaknesses that are going to move the needle in my programming or in my career? And then I'm going to attack those. I'm going to find a filter. I'm going to learn as much as I can from them. And then I'm going to start to spin and move outward from there. I'm going to start to pull from other areas. So now I've got a broader understanding of how this works as a whole. Just kind of go along with that. That's part of what I tried to do with the complete coach cert. I want you to have this broad understanding of anatomy, of assessments when the new version comes out, of, you know, programming, movement and coaching and why we teach movement the way that we do, because I don't feel like enough people have that. So many people now are just back squatting because they've always back squatted. They're barbell bench pressing because they've always barbell bench pressed. And they don't have this strong understanding as to, oh, well, when I do this, it may positively impact my movement but it may negatively impact it as well. There could be negative consequences to choosing these specific exercises. So very long-winded and maybe somewhat roundabout answer, but I hope that gives you a better understanding as to how I plan and structure Con Ed, not only for myself, but for my mentees when they're working with me as well. Okay, number three, Matt Blunk wants to know, how do you sift through new info that you think might be legit but also might be BS. And I won't say the actual bad word here because I don't know if any little people are listening either at my house or yours. So when it comes to this, this comes down to you've got to have a filter. And this is why when you're 22 years old and you're exposed to YouTube and Instagram and all these other things, it's got to be impossible, right? I, I literally, I feel bad for young coaches these days because they're bombarded with information and they don't have a filter for it. Luckily, when I was coming up, most of the people that were that were talking a lot were also some of the most established, whether it was Ian King, Charles Poliquin, Pavel Satsulin, Dave Tate, Louis Simmons. These guys were already amazing at what they did, and therefore they had earned the right to have a media platform, right? Whether it was T Nation, whether it was USA Powerlifting Magazine, whatever, or PLUSA, whatever 
they put out there, I felt like had earned its stripes. Versus now, if you've got a set of six-pack abs and a ring light, you can be the next internet sensation. So I think what you have to do here is, number one, you got to spend time researching and you got to take the time to figure out, okay, who really is legit? Who's out there, not just with a massive social media following, but who is out there building an amazing business? Training, I don't want to say the best athletes because that's not always a great indicator either, but who is developing their athletes? So I don't want to just know the guy that's training James Harden. I want to know the guy that started with the kid who went undrafted, went overseas, made it to the G League, then got an NBA contract. What is that guy doing? That's what I want to know about because that shows a development in that athlete's game and in their body. And then a final way that you can do this, if you're really unsure, is to dabble with it in your programming. And I know Stu McMillan has talked about this. I think I'll give him credit, but I think this is something that most coaches intuitively do to some degree, where when you're trying out new stuff in your programming, you don't just blow up your entire program and base your your new program around stuff that you think might work, right? About 80% of it is tried and true basic stuff. You like 80% is stuff that you know will work. Another 10% is stuff that you've dabbled with in the past and you're pretty sure it works, right? So if we're adding this up, like 90% of what we have already is just honest to goodness, pure training stuff that we think will work. And then if you want to get sexy and you want to get exotic and you want to try some of this fringe stuff out, that's your last 10%. Because chances are, if it works, great. It's going to give you that super additive effect. And if it doesn't work, it's probably not going to hold you back all that much. And it's probably not going to take away from the performance gains you got from the other 90%. So again, kind of a long-winded answer, but you got to have a filter first. You've got to have an understanding so you can push stuff through to ask yourself, like, is this, do I think this would work, right? The old saying, does it, if it looks right, it flies right, rings true there. And then you always give yourself a little bit of wiggle room in your programming to dabble and experiment with new stuff because that's how you grow. That's how you evolve. And some of the stuff will work great and you'll want to keep it forever. And some of it, you'll try it for like one or two blocks and you'll think, oh, well, that sounded really cool on paper, but then I tried it in real life and it just didn't work out the way that I wanted. Last but not least, Dustin Yancey wants to know, what's my process for Con Ed and how do you go about creating courses? So kind of already illustrated my process and that's that whole idea of deep dive into a subject, use a filter, and then start to add and and use that filter to add new new materials from there. But when it comes to creating a course, this is a, a bigger topic. I won't give you the most detailed answer here, but I'll at least give you some insight. So let's let's use Complete Coach as an example, because I, prior to creating Complete Coach, had created no less than 20 information products right? And we're talking short form, long form, audio, video, DVD, online, manuals, combination products. I've done it all. So when I wanted to create Complete Coach, my big thing there was, first and foremost, you have to ask yourself, what do I want the end user to get out of this? It's just like writing a program. If you're going to write a program, the first thing you have to ask is, if I only get one thing out of this program, what is it going to be? So if it's a fat loss client, you know, there's a lot of other things. I may be happy if they add muscle or they get stronger, but first and foremost, I want them to lose body fat, right? So you have to be really clear when it comes to creating a product, what do I want the end user to get out of this? So when I started laying out Complete Coach, my thought process was this, and 
hopefully the certifying bodies don't get mad when I say this, but regardless of where you got your certification from, it is woefully insufficient in teaching you how to be a good coach. It just is. And I hate to say it like that, but I mean, look, I passed my CSCS when I was a senior in college and I had trained exactly zero people up to that point in time. So as soon as I graduated, I would have been a CSCS having trained nobody. So that's not necessarily a flaw in the system. I passed the test, but what it does is it just shows you that there's a lot left to be learned after you get that piece of paper. So my thought process is, okay, this is the base level of information that somebody should have to be a coach. And you get that from the NSCA, the NASM, ACE, ISSA, whatever your certifying body is. So now if I know that, what are the things that I think are really going to impact coaches and athletes and help them move the needle? And that's what I did when I created that product. I started with functional anatomy and I broke down breathing and I broke down the things that they don't teach you about movement if you're learning dead guy anatomy right? I learned this is how these muscles actually work in real movement. Then we talk about, you know, program design. And it's not just how do I write a strength block and a power block and a hypertrophy block. It's no, here are the tools. Here are the individual pieces of the puzzle. Here's sets and reps. Here's time under tension. Here's rest periods. And like, let's deep dive into those, right? Let's, well, let's talk about time under tension. What are you really doing? When you manipulate time under tension, when you take that two second eccentric and you turn it into five, what changes? So this is what I was trying to do with that product. And, you know, again, I'm going to add the assessment piece in. So I hope going forward, it's going to be a hundred percent complete. Like you're going to have functional anatomy. You're going to have the assessment process. You're going to have writing a program. You're going to have coaching. You're going to have progressions, regressions so that somebody that has just gotten their cert, any certifying body. When they walk out of there, they can say, hey, I have this piece of paper, but I'm also armed with all this information that's real world, that's applicable, that helps me understand if normally I would back squat this person, but they have shoulder pain or they have back pain or they have a weak anterior core, whatever you want to describe it as, I have a system that I can fall back on. I've got regressions that I can take them back to that allow them to execute that movement with high level of proficiency and that allows them to not just move proficiently, but that helps them achieve their movement goals or it helps them achieve their aesthetic or athletic goals while building better movement quality on top of it. So that's kind of my thought process. It's no different than writing a program. And it's funny, but as strength coaches, as physical preparation coaches, everything comes back to programming. But that's the way I think about it, right? Just like you would figure out what are the weaknesses of a specific client or athlete, I tried to figure out what weaknesses can I find in up and coming trainers and coaches? And then how can I help them fill those needs? How can I help them plug those gaps so that ultimately when they go through a project like Complete Coach, they are a better trainer or coach in the end. Okay, last but not least, we're gonna talk about program design. I got three questions here and they are all three very, very good. Number one, we're going to start with Joey Scambia. Scambia, Scambia. Hopefully I don't mispronounce that. I should get clarification before I butcher people's last names on air. But Joey wants to know, what do you look for in the sagittal plane before introducing frontal or transverse plane work? So this is a great question. And if I channeled my inner Bill Hartman, I would say, oh, there is only one plane. There is only the transverse plane. But I think unless you're Bill Hartman, 
or Gary Gray or somebody that, that thinks and can conceptualize on that level and generally somebody that's done this 30 or 40 or more years, I think there's certain things that you're looking for, right? For me, some of the big things are being able to fit into the movement model that I'm looking for, right? So if I'm coaching somebody and I'm using that side view, right? They need to be able to stack the pelvis on top of the rib cage. Generally, that means they've got good core control. That means they've got full hip extension and it's true hip extension. They need to be able to execute the movement in a way that I feel is sufficient. So, you know, I'm looking for how can they control the sagittal plane in a squat, in a hinge, in a push-up, in half kneeling, in a lunge, in a split squat. And if they can check a lot of those boxes, then I'm going to start to open things up. And I think a mistake that I've made in the past and bless my soul, but I have made pretty much all of them is sometimes I have become too nitpicky with regards to movement and I haven't widened people's movement windows or their trainable menus enough. So this is something that I've tried to get better about as I've done this longer. I'm never going to allow sloppy technique or sloppy movement or allow somebody to progress too quickly, but I'm also not going to be like a movement Nazi either, where if somebody doesn't have a hundred percent perfect movement, they don't get to level up. Because I think, especially when it comes to athletes, we need to expose them to a lot of stuff in the gym. We need to expose them, expose them to different postures, different positions, different planes of movement. So this is something that I've really worked hard at in the last couple of years. And I think, man, not only has it made program design more fun for me because I'm not falling back into the same 20 or 30 exercises all the time, but it's really made things more fun and more engaging for my athletes because I want the gym to be a fun place. I don't want them to feel like, oh, you know, we got a goblet squat today or, oh, here's our here's our push-up day. Like, who's to say a push-up has to look 100% perfect? It's about leveling up in your movement quality every time you're in the gym and then progressively finding ways to challenge them in safe but effective environments. So if a push-up doesn't look 110% perfect, like you couldn't put it on whatever the NSCA website is, this is perfect push-up technique, that's okay. Because you know what? A lot of our clients and a lot of our athletes, that's not what they're looking for anyways. They want to move well enough. They want to be put into safe and effective environments, but they also want it to be fun and they want it to be challenging. So a little bit wishy-washy there with the answer, but I would just say, you know, based on how this question sounds and based on how a lot of the people that interact with me think, I think too often we focus on technique has to be 100% perfect before you move on. And I would say, hey, Let's settle for like 90, 95% and be okay with, hey, they're going to continue to come back to this exercise over the months, over the years. That's going to continue to get better and better, but let's expose them to some other stuff that may change the adaptation a little bit, and that's going to help keep their training fun and fresh along the way. Number two, Alex Effer of Intensive number eight, De Ocho, fame. Alex and I did the intensive together a couple months ago. So awesome dude. And I'm glad he could chime in here. And Alex wants to know, how has your programming process developed or evolved over the years? And this is a really good question because like all coaches, I'm always evolving, right? And and not evolving or changing just for the sake of evolution or change, but to make things better, either to become more efficient, to cut out wasted motion, to just make things better for the clients and athletes that I work with. So there have been a couple of things that have changed over the years. I would say the most resounding one though 
is that I have really tried hard to smooth the transitions. So if you go and you look at the R7 article that was published years ago, there's a graphic and it basically looks like a bell curve and it's kind of smooth coming up. We get to R4 and we're doing our high neurological stuff, our speed, power explosiveness, our resistance work. As we get to R6 and we condition, we start to come down the backside of that bell curve and then we hit R7 and we recover and things flatten out. So the big thing that happens though is especially when you're young, you've got these very distinct starting and stopping points, right? So it's like, oh man, we're going to do our speed and our power stuff and it's going to be very abrupt and and powerful. And then we're going to go in the gym and we're not going to warm up. We're just going to go straight into our strength stuff. And then we're going to bang weights and then we're going to go in and we're going to condition and we're going to be really focused there versus thinking about how do I smooth all of this, right? How do I smooth these transitions? And sometimes it's it's ramping up in our warm up. So like once we get into R4, just because you did a full dynamic mobility warm up in R3 doesn't mean you go out and you sprint 30 yards full out on your first rep, right? Maybe you're going to do some strides. You're going to do some starts to five meters. You're going to do some starts to 10, 15, 20 meters. You're going to do maybe a 30 yarder at 50, 75, and then you're going to go to hundred percent. So you're trying to smooth and blend all these sections of the workout together. When you go in the weight room, you don't just go up to your first working set, right? You don't just go in and put 405 on the bar. So maybe if you're, you know, trap barring, you're going to go 135, two and a quarter, 315, and then you're going to hit four wheels for your first work set. But just trying to blend and smooth all these elements. And there's that blending and smoothing, not only in the day, in the, the actual training session, but being able to do this from week to week and month to month, there is an art to that. And I think that's what I'm trying to do. So it's not just like, okay, block number one, we're going to go slow eccentrics and isos and we're going to work connective tissue and we're going to forget about everything else and then go into month two and yeah, we'll have a little bit of like speed and power and conditioning, but we're just going to crush you with weights. And then month three, we're going to forget about weights and we're going to go all speed and power and conditioning work to get you ready for preseason. I think the more you do this, I mean, Charlie Francis was so smart, but that whole concept of like vertical integration and having these different elements and really what you're playing around with is the ratios, right? And the percentages, like how much strength work do you need in each block? How much speed and power and explosive work do you need in each block? How much conditioning do you need in each block? And then you're just trying to make sure that at no point in time do you get so far away that it's like a jolt to the system. So there's always elements of all of that, especially if you're working with athletes, you need elements of each. The real art of this is figuring out how much do you need at each stop along the way so that when an athlete hits preseason, they feel fresh, they feel strong, they feel explosive, they come in healthy, and they're ready to perform at a high level. So I think that's the biggest change that I've made over the years is trying to smooth those transitions, not only in a training day, but across training weeks and across training months to make it really smooth and effortless for the athlete. It's never this jolt to their system. Okay, last but not least, Jeremy L. Elliott, who is a complete coach member and somebody that's on the Facebook group, had a really good question as well. So Jeremy wants to know, how do you start to add and blend in more pieces of the puzzle, i.e. speed work, conditioning work, etc.? And this comes back to You know, if you're a one trick pony like I was, that's fine. When I came out, 
and I started working with more athletes, I had a very powerlifting focused mindset. So it was strength, strength, strength. Well, strength is going to help you get faster and more powerful. So we're going to get strong. And if you're strong, well, then you will be more economical. So it'll be less effort for you to go out and run. So that's going to help your conditioning. That was my thought process, right? For right or wrong. So I think when you want to start blending these, the first thing you have to do, number one, is come to the realization that, hey, it's okay, but I'm a one-trick pony right now. So if I'm going to start adding in speed work or conditioning work, I have to understand I don't know this very well, so I'm just going to dip my toe in the water. It's like when you go to the pool and it's like you know the pool is going to be cold, so you kind of stick your toe in the water. That's what you have to do with your speed work. So you want to start adding linear accelerations in. You don't throw in 20 linear accelerations on day one. Like, hey, we're just going to do like 10 five-yard starts. We're just going to work on starts. We're going to work on finding good shin angles. We're going to work on throwing those arms, finding a good torso position, and just driving, right? So low volume, probably not going to stress the system too much, so you're dabbling. When you add in your conditioning work, same thing. Hey, you're not trying to go out and do a full conditioning workout after you just did your speed and power and your strength workout. So you're going to add a little bit of conditioning on the end. Maybe it's tempo or oxidative lifting. Maybe it's a few prowler repeat sprints. You know, if it's really close to preseason, maybe it's just a touch of lactic work. But I can't stress this highly enough. What you don't want to do is take your current strength training program, which up to this point was your whole program, keep that as is, and then start to add in a whole bunch of speed and power and a whole bunch of conditioning work on either end of it. That's a recipe to blow somebody up. So what I found over the years, and and when a lot of people look at my R5, my strength programs now for athletes, they're like, oh, that doesn't look like much. That's not a lot of volume because honestly, most of my my athlete workouts, the R5 section can be done in 30 minutes. Maybe in a force block where we're taking a little bit more rest, we're pushing a little bit heavier weights, we're maybe doing some PAP where they need to rest longer, maybe 40 minutes. But that's a big portion of their workout then. Like every athlete that I work with should be done in 60 to 90 minutes. There's absolutely no reason it should go longer than 90. So you just have to think this is again where it comes down to your ratios, right? So maybe when I'm starting an off season, it's one third R4, one third R5, one third R6. That's probably not even right. It's probably like, geez, I don't know, three quarters R4 and R5 and maybe one quarter R6. And we're just getting started, right? When we get into that second block where we're pushing some force output, we're trying to make them a little bit stronger. Maybe it's like one fourth R4, one half R5, one fourth R6. Then we get to the end, man, it's probably like, I don't know, 40%, 35, 40% R4, 35, 40% R6, and it's like 20% R5. All we're trying to do is maintain strength at that point. So I think that's what you have to do. I think you have to be smart in how you start putting these pieces together because the natural tendency is to think add, 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 all right? So I've got this great strength program. I'm going to keep that as is, and I'm going to add in speed work and conditioning work on either side of it. And your athletes aren't ready for that. They they explode as a result. So I'm reminded, when, geez, this is probably eight years ago, nine years ago now, we used to hold our Midwest Performance Enhancement Seminars. It turned into the Physical Prep Summit, which is a much better name. But anyway, Midwest Performance Enhancement Seminars is like 11, 12, somewhere in there. Brett Jones comes in and I want him to talk about kettlebells because I love Brett. I love his thought process. And I asked Brett, I said, you know, talk about kettlebells for a day. 
And the first thing he says in his talk was, here's the first thing you have to understand. If you're going to add kettlebells into your program, what's something you're going to take out? And that statement alone still rings true to this day. If you're going to start adding in other elements to a program, what are you going to take out to make room for it? So hope that helps. And hopefully it gives you some insight as to how to start dabbling in these other areas. Because I think if you want to be a great physical prep coach, you have to understand sports sports are multifactorial. Speed, strength, power, conditioning, flexibility, mobility, it's all important. So being a one-trick pony is not going to get you very far, especially in this day and age. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode of the Physical Prep Podcast. I know it's a little bit different doing a Q&A, but man, I enjoy these when I get the off chance to do them. It allows me to connect with all of you. It allows me to talk a little bit about things that I'm excited and passionate about because, man, I've been recording this for well over an hour now at this point. I don't know how long it'll end up being, but man, I just, I still get jazzed up talking about this stuff. So I hope it's helped you. If it has, please help me out. Share it with a friend, a family member, a fellow trainer, coach, athlete, whoever you think would benefit from the questions that I answer in this show. If you could do that for me, it would be greatly appreciated. So my friend, that does it for this week's show. As always, love and appreciate you. Thank you so much for your support. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.